thankful for uh, Steve's prayers today for my family. I don't often do this, but on a personal note, uh, today is uh, our mass anniversary. It was 10 years ago today that Sarah and I set out from the beautiful fields of western mountains, really, beautiful mountains of western Pennsylvania to come uh, and uh, to move to Massachusetts. And two days later, we were here in worship with you. Um, and uh, I've gotten to see some of your kids grow up, some, and to minister to you. And it has been a joy marking time with you uh, and praying for the Lord's continued faithfulness for the future. Which brings us uh, to one more important item for prayer. Uh, as seasons change and your children grow older, now is the time each year when we recognize some of the graduates among us. Uh, this year, uh, we have eight graduates. Uh, we have four high school graduates, three graduating from college and one from graduate school. That is, unless uh, I have miscalculated, in which case I sincerely apologize. Um, but uh, I've saved this item for prayer for myself because I really just like doing it. Uh, and, uh, and reading the names and telling you a little bit about uh, some of these students and also praying for them. Uh, so our high school graduates this year, uh, Stephen Berry, uh, that's junior, uh, senior has enough diplomas already. Uh, Stephen Berry, junior, uh, graduating from LCA and he'll be headed to Syracuse University in the fall. Uh, Abigail Curran uh, is heading to Geneva College. Way to go. Uh, Brendan Rowland. Uh, is headed to Cedarville University. And then uh, Andre Summers has also graduated high school this year, uh, and I believe will be heading to college, but I don't have that listed in front of me here. Uh, and then our college graduates, Becky Campelli, uh, who completed her degree this year at UMass Lowell in computer science. Uh, and uh, Becky has a job already, and we'll be starting that pretty soon. Uh, Lizzie Campelli completed her associate's degree from Middlesex Community College in Liberal Arts and Sciences. Uh, and Hannah Steele also graduated uh, this year from Messiah College, and I believe her degree was in fine arts. Yeah. Uh, and so those are our college graduates. And one smarty smart pants up in graduate school, Ian Bleeker, uh, finishing at UMass Lowell with a master's in nuclear engineering. So uh, if you see uh, Ian later, uh, see how embarrassed he is. Um, <laughs> Have, I'm so, Marie, I'm so sorry. I knew I was going to do this. That's why I brought an extra gift. I knew I was going to forget one. I'm so sorry. Marie Wanick is heading to Calvin College uh, out in the Midwest. Is that correct? Good. So Marie Wanick, also one of our graduates. My apologies uh, to the Wanicks. Any others that I've forgotten today? All right. Uh, well, we also have, uh, on behalf of the congregation, a gift for you all. Surprise, it's books. Uh, so make sure, uh, if you see me later, grab, uh, grab a stack of books. Uh, but the most important part of all of this is prayer uh, for these young folks as they're heading out into new avenues of life. So please join me as we go to the Lord again in prayer, and then we will end by praying for our study of the scriptures today. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord God, we thank you for uh, fresh horizons of youth. We thank you for new opportunities stretching out before these young people who are a part of our congregation and have, uh, in some cases, grown up here, been a part of us for a long time. We thank you for your faithfulness, which we have seen writ large already among them as they've come and, and professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your instruction to them 
uh, through those who walked with them in Sunday schools, through those uh, who gathered together with them as they aged and saw them uh, growing in faithfulness and godliness. Oh, Lord, we pray that as each of these young people uh, go forth into uh, whatever direction you have for them, whether into work or whether into further study, oh, Lord, that you would prosper their way before you. We pray that they would walk in paths of righteousness with you. We pray that their hearts and their desires would be set upon uh, serving you. And, and wherever you have them, we pray that you would provide churches for them, especially for those who are going away to find uh, a new college and, and new friends and uh, dormitories and all that comes with college life and further study. Oh, Lord, we pray that the most important thing, uh, that you would uh, provide a church and a family for them where they can continue to grow in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, where they can continue to use the gifts that you have given them as you grow them into adults in your church. Lord, we thank you uh, for those who uh, may remain among us, and uh, we rejoice to see uh, children becoming adults and serving in your church even here already. We thank you for those uh, who continue to serve, and we pray that uh, for all of these people that you, that you would help them, for these young men and women as they uh, seek out uh, your will for their lives. We pray that you would give them glad and, uh, and joyous hearts as they receive all of your gifts and that you would give them steadfastness in the Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, give them the wisdom uh, to shake off uh, some of the foolishness of youth and the sins that so easily entangle. We pray that you would uh, cause them to grow into maturity, not only uh, in spirit and mind and in body, but also into maturity with you and into steadfast. Uh, faithfulness and holiness. So, Lord, would you do this for the great sake of your name? Now, as we turn our attention uh, to the reading and to the study of your word, we pray that you would give us attentive hearts, incline our ears to hear from you and our hearts to receive from you. We pray that you would uh, make us like little children before you as you teach us by your word. Make us your children, O Lord, to receive what you have for us and so enrich us and build us up, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now today, uh, we are beginning a new study for the summer, uh, studying through some of the Proverbs, and that means that uh, some of our study this summer is going to look a little bit different. Uh, as we progress uh, this summer, we're going to do a bit of a topical study, uh, week by week, looking at some of the clusters of individual Proverbs that deal with uh, particular issues, but today, uh, you can feel comfy because we've got one prolonged logical explanation that we can follow through verse by verse, and this may be the last time uh, for this summer. So uh, let's together turn to Proverbs chapter 2 as we see what the Lord has for us in His Word. Proverbs chapter 2, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter, though uh, the majority of our study today really is going to be on verses 1 through 8. We will look somewhat uh, at verses 9 through 22, but verses 9 through 22 actually uh, concern two of the issues that we will come back to later uh, this summer, God's wisdom for the company we keep, and also God's wisdom for sexual purity. And we'll come back to revisit both of those issues, so our, our majority of our study today will be in verses 1 through 8, but we will look uh, somewhat at the entire passage today. So uh, Proverbs chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, you can find that on page, page 528 of our ESVs. Hear now the word of the Lord. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, 
Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked, who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we read and hear today. One of my favorite scenes uh, in The Hobbit is that initial exchange between Bilbo Baggins and Gollum deep in the heart of the Misty Mountains. You probably remember the scene. Uh, Bilbo, of course, awakens from a head injury to find that he's been left behind uh, in dark tunnels filled with goblins. And as he paws his way along in the darkness, he eventually finds a mysterious ring, and then he comes upon a mysterious creature. And when the two meet, each one, Bilbo and Gollum, each one thinks that the other might be the answer to their own problem. Bilbo's problem, of course, is that he is lost. Gollum's problem is that he's hungry. And so the, the question of whether to eat the hobbit or to lead him to safety is decided the way that you decide things in a Tolkien novel. Uh, they have a contest of riddles. And you may remember some of these as well. Gollum asks, what has roots as nobody sees? Is taller than trees. Up, up, up it goes and yet never grows. The answer? Mountains. Mountains. Uh, and then Bilbo, in one of his replies, a box without hinges, key, or lid, yet golden treasure inside is hid. It's an egg. Now the contest continues. The contest continues as Gollum inches closer and closer to Bilbo, and uh, you can almost feel Bilbo uh, getting more nervous as he tries to think of one more riddle until he finally blurts out, what have I got in my pocket? And it wasn't quite a riddle, but it does the trick. And there is a, a real pleasure in reading that scene, even just for uh, the linguistic uh, acrobatics that we see there and trying to unlock the puzzles, but the drama is increased as we understand what's in stake, and the delight in the passage is increased as we understand what's at stake. Well, I'm sure Tolkien could have written just an anthology of riddles if he wanted to. He could write books uh, that we could have puzzled over for, for decades, for centuries, but uh, for Bilbo Baggins, the, the riddles were about life and death. You could escape from the tunnel or you could become somebody's dinner. And so it's really the drama that increases 
the urgency of understanding the hidden meaning. And sometimes when we open the book of Proverbs, it feels, uh, it may feel as though we're eavesdropping on ancient riddles from a fantasy world somewhere. Proverbs 13, 8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Proverbs 17, 8. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. These are the kinds of things that we think about when we think about Proverbs, these these minuscule morsels of wisdom that that cause us to stop and, and wonder what they might mean. Of course, the Proverbs aren't always as obscure as some of these that I've cited. Uh, They're full of the things of everyday life. They're uh, filled with things like uh, fields and work and marriage and kings and relationships and words spoken in haste and and hearts broken by longing. The, The Proverbs are full of the things that you and I encounter every day, but kind of like a riddle, the Proverbs work best when they don't give up their treasure too quickly. They cause us to slow down and to ponder the wisdom that's before us. Maybe that's why Proverbs is overlooked in our day. We like something quick. We want a quick snippet. We, we want uh, a little piece of something that's rational and logical and scientifically validated, and we want it all uh, in an Internet article that we can, we can skim through in three minutes and go on our merry way, but the Proverbs tell us to slow down. And they cause us to pause and to meditate on God's wisdom. And like Bilbo's riddles in the dark, the value of the Proverbs is magnified when we understand what's at stake in its teaching. Proverbs, you know, is a book that sets before us two ways. There is the way of wisdom and there is the way of folly. And these also are known as the ways of righteousness and the ways of wickedness. Proverbs gives to us a a map, if you will, a navigational map of how life works best in the world that God has made. That's a very important part of it. Not just a map of where you might want to go someday, but a This is touching on theological issues here, righteousness and wickedness, uh, wisdom and folly. And it's a warning against the roads that lead to disobedience and sin and disaster, and these are the roads that you are on every day. Proverbs talks about the choices that you make perhaps a thousand times a day without even thinking about them, and Proverbs tells you to slow down and to consider and to ruminate a bit. Well, today, as we begin our summer series, we're beginning somewhere close to the beginning, not quite in chapter 1, but we're thinking today about the wisdom of wisdom. What is the value of slowing down this summer with Proverbs? What is the, the wisdom, what is the value of having a heart that's inclined to hear and to receive God's instruction? Now, as we open up this passage, I want to do so together in, in four points today. Uh, and uh, the first one, Uh, that we need to see in the beginning of the passage is the pursuit of wisdom. We find this in the first five verses. It's the pursuit of wisdom. And Solomon is teaching us that wisdom is not the kind of quality uh, that naturally occurs in the heart of man. It's not the sort of thing that is easy to come by that you just sort of fall into. This past week, my oldest son had his annual checkup, and the doctor told us what what we all uh, suspected, that he's very tall and very thin for his age. 90th percentile for height, 30th percentile for weight, and that's actually the, that's the curve that he's been on his entire life, and if you met my father-in-law last week, you know exactly where he gets it. 
that's the way it happens in families. If you're born into a family full of redheads, there's a good chance you're going to be a redhead. If, if everybody in your family has blue eyes, you might also have blue eyes. You don't have to try very hard to look like your parents. It just, it just kind of happens. It's natural. You fall into it. The same thing happens with personalities, by the way. Every time I meet together with a young couple and they're about to get married and we're going through premarital counseling, we take some time to talk about, well, how did your parents argue with one another? And that's because almost inevitably, newlyweds begin their marriage dealing with conflict the way they saw their parents deal with conflict. It's not as though anybody gets married and says, you know, when I get married and have a family and have kids, I think I'm going to yell a lot. I think that's what would be good for my family. I'm going to be the dad who yells. Nobody does that. It's just what you fall into, and it just sort of happens. But that's not how it works with wisdom. Real biblical wisdom doesn't just poof, show up for anybody. Wisdom, says Proverbs, is a treasure that has to be mined. Wisdom is something you have to pursue. You might find people that are naturally intelligent. They might have a very high IQ score, and their, their brains are attuned to, to figuring out facts and memorizing things and figuring out the constituent parts of, of a problem and working out mechanical ways of putting things together and making things work and all of that sort of, of, of head knowledge, but that's not exactly what wisdom is in the Scriptures. Wisdom is a lot more than an IQ. In the Bible, wisdom walks hand in hand with terms like knowledge, yes, but also insight, discretion. Knowledge is seeing things the way they are, understanding the facts, understanding the makeup of something. But insight goes a little bit deeper than that. Insight is, is what you might call being able to read a room, picking up on those subtle hints of somebody else's conversation with you, the implied understanding that they haven't said, but everybody knows is there. Insight sort of looks at the heart of a matter, whereas knowledge gets the pieces right. And then there's discernment. Discernment is a decision-making discipline. Choosing between what is good and what is bad. Sometimes choosing between what is good and what is better. Well, in the Scriptures, wisdom is all of this. It's knowledge and insight and discretion. It's much more, in fact. And all of them work together hand-in-hand to lead the person who is wise in the right direction. One scholar has called wisdom the art of steering through life recognizing the potholes and avoiding them and, and going in the right direction. But the truth is that, that even if you're the kind of person who is naturally intelligent, naturally knowledgeable, naturally insightful, naturally discerning, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are wise. It's because biblical wisdom is more than steering your own way through your own individual plans and your own individual life. Wisdom is about choosing the right path in the sight of God Almighty. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is, is, is insight. That's wisdom. It's living with the humility before the Lord, understanding that you live in His world, in His creation, and deciding based on what He has said is good, not simply what your flesh desires or what the world is telling you. Real wisdom is choosing God's way and living in fellowship with Him. And that's why wisdom doesn't just poof, show up for anybody. It's not the sort of thing that we come by naturally, at least not since the fall. In fact, that's the great irony of that first sin in the garden. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to what? To make one wise. That's what she wanted. Wisdom. Experience. First-hand knowledge. Discernment between right and wrong. Experiential knowledge she wanted. And so she took and she ate and so did the man and their eyes were opened. And humanity has been running from God ever since. They saw their condition and they chose to to cover their own nakedness. They chose to hide from the God that they've disobeyed. And Paul in the New Testament says the same scenario plays over and over again, the world over, everywhere. For although they knew God, Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools, exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the foolishness of idolatry. Billions upon billions of intelligent, well-mannered, knowledgeable people walking around refusing to acknowledge the God who has created them. This is not wisdom. Refusing to bend your knee and to incline your heart in His direction. So we need to start here before we go anywhere else this summer. We need to understand that wisdom is a theological category. We're not just talking about efficiency. We're not talking about pragmatism. We're not just talking about what will make you happy and wealthy and wise. We're talking about how do you live before the Lord with the fear of of who He is and how He's created you and the world that He has put you into. This is what wisdom is. It's doing justice and it's loving mercy. Wisdom is walking humbly with your God, and that doesn't come naturally for any sinner since the fall. So Proverbs tells us, if you want to find wisdom, you've got to pursue it. You've got to go after it and strive for it. Notice the verbs that are used in the first four verses. Verses 1 and 2, I think, show us this this passive pursuit of wisdom, if we could call it that. Seeking, Seeking after wisdom begins with a willingness to What's it say in verse 1? Receive. To receive words of wisdom. A willingness to treasure up commandments. That's taking what the Lord is giving us and and being meek enough to receive the implanted word, James would tell us. And then verse 2, it's an idea of of tuning the ear. It's It's about inclining the heart. There's a humility that's involved in pursuing wisdom. Who will benefit from reading the Proverbs? Is it the person who comes to this section of the Old Testament and says, that's old-fashioned and I don't need to know any of that sort of thing? Or is it the person who comes in humility? With the standpoint of a pupil, one who is willing to learn. You notice verse 1, it's written, my son. And and in fact, uh, Solomon, the one who compiled these Proverbs and wrote many of them, is the one who gathered these together and gave them as, as wisdom for his sons so that they would be wise as well. That implies that you need to come to this word this summer and today with the humility of a child to hear God's wisdom for you, to receive with meekness the implanted word of God. This is part of the pursuit. It's the question of how are you receiving God's word today? We're only 15 minutes in. Are you already judging this word? Are you sitting in judgment on the messenger who's preaching this word? Are you, are you drowsily slipping in and out of attentiveness 
Or have you fixed your heart on what the Lord has for you here? Have you made your ear attentive? Have you inclined your heart to gain understanding and to do so with humility? Are you pursuing? But then there's also an active pursuit of wisdom. Pursuing wisdom isn't just about receiving. It's not just about about inclining. It's also, also about calling out. It's about digging down. It's about getting to the heart of the matter. Understanding comes to those, uh, says Solomon, who raise their voices for understanding in verse 3. It comes to those who search for understanding with the zeal of a treasure hunter. In 1848, gold was discovered in Coloma, California. And over the next seven years, there was what has come to be known as the California Gold Rush. 300,000 people relocated in search of wealth. That was a dangerous trip if you wanted to get there. And many came from other countries. Many came from across the United States. And they traversed a wilderness where there were no stagecoaches running the whole way. There uh, There were no railroads connecting the East Coast to the West Coast. Others opted for the sea route. Perhaps you would get on a steamship somewhere in New York and you would sail 18,000 nautical miles down all the way around the tip of South America just to get to California so you could begin to look for gold. Solomon's telling us we ought to pursue wisdom with an energy that would make a 49er blush. Dear friends, how are you pursuing wisdom today? Are you raising your voice like Solomon? 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 is the wisest prayer that Solomon ever prayed. O Lord my God, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Are you calling out like that? Are you daily searching the scriptures like the Bereans to see if God's wisdom is true as he said it is? You compare scripture with scripture to see where wisdom may be found. Wisdom is a treasure that has to be mined And so we have to commit ourselves to the pursuit of it. Then we learn that those who pursue wisdom will find the provider of wisdom. That's our second point, the provider of wisdom. Now, beginning in verse 5, Solomon makes a promise to us that sounds an awful lot like a promise that was made by another son of David. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. And this is the buildup that we've been hearing Verse 1, if you receive my words. Take a look at it. Verse 3, if you call out for insight. Verse 4, if you seek it like silver. Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Then you will find the knowledge of God. Wisdom is available, he says. The fear of the Lord, the biblical definition of wisdom, walking rightly before him and and observing his paths and knowing who he is, being in relationship with him, it's available. And in fact, all those who really seek it will find it. All those treasure hunters that went to California faced an arduous journey. And even when they got there, if they got there, one in 12 died along the way, by the way. Even if they got there, there was no guarantee that they would find the gold they went and searched for. What's the word that you use for someone who goes out somewhere looking for gold? You call them a prospector. Someone who follows the prospect of finding something. It's like a hunch. 
Maybe not even as good as a hunch. You've heard that other people have found, and you're going to go and you're going to invest industry with the prospect of finding something that you think might be there, something that you're hoping for, but there's no guarantee. And there's a world of difference between a prospect and a promise, and Solomon is giving us a promise. Verse 5 is telling us that the Lord will be found by all those who seek him out. And his promise is much richer than even the seekers expect. What are they pursuing? Insight, understanding, wisdom. And we find that in the first line. Well, you under, you'll understand the fear of the Lord. Yes, that's, that's what it is. You'll, you'll know what it is to walk before him. But then the second line of verse 5 expands the horizon a little bit. Not only will you find the fear of the Lord, but you'll find the knowledge of God. Now, this isn't just a synonym. Solomon's not just saying the same thing in a different way. What does the Bible mean when it talks about the knowledge of someone else? Knowing someone. Well, it talks about a relationship, doesn't it? It's talking about experiencing that other person as they share themselves with you and you share yourself with them. It's typically a marriage term, but the Lord says, if you come, if you seek, you will find the knowledge of God. This is what he wants for his people. He tells us in Hosea chapter 6, not only does he desire mercy instead of sacrifice, he desires that we would know him, that we would come into a relationship with him. This is the, the great promise of the covenant in Christ. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why not? Why will we not need teaching? In, in the same passage, Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, No longer will the word only be written on tablets of stone. Why not? Because there will be something more intimate. There will be the law written on the heart. There will be those, he says, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This is the promise. And this promise in Proverbs is trending in that direction. If you seek for the Lord, not only will you find wisdom, but you'll find him. Not only will you find the wisdom he gives, but you'll find the one who provides wisdom for you. And he'll bring you into relationship. Folks, this should be an encouragement to all those who are weary of sounding the empty depths of man's wisdom. All those who seem to go from one thing to another thing, who hop from system to system, hoping to find something that will stick. I'm not just talking about hobbies and, and interests. I'm talking about that kid who goes off to college and declares a religious studies minor. They're going to study world religions and they decide that in order to really study them, they've got to try them all on for a little bit and see how they fit and see if there's anything worth keeping. And so uh, this semester they've tried on a little bit of Buddhism. Not too long ago it was Jewish mysticism and maybe sometime in the future they'll be uh, reading horoscopes and they'll be studying uh, healing crystals and that sort of thing. And they keep going from philosophy to philosophy hoping to find something worth sticking with and Paul says these people are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And you see them. You see them every Thanksgiving when you go home and you sit at your extended family. And you think, how exhausted must this person be? Always seeking, always looking, never finding. And Solomon's telling us, if you look for the Lord, if you seek him, he will be found. There's more than a prospect here. There's a promise. Here we have the Lord who provides wisdom for his people, who promises 
to be found by him. In fact, as we search the scriptures, we find that all real seeking of the Lord begins with the Lord seeking his people. That's why we know that he can be found, because he's the one who's inspiring the seeking in us. Notice this mirror language between verses 1 and 4 and verses 5 to 8. In verse 1, Solomon said, my son, receive my words. But then uh, in verse 6, actually find that it's from the Lord that wisdom comes. It's from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Treasure up my commandments, he said earlier. And now we find that it's the Lord who stores up, verse 7, wisdom for the upright. And then he goes on to speak of the Lord who shields his people who walk in integrity. He guards the paths of justice. He watches over the way of his saints. And it sounds like a catch-22. Our hearts are not naturally inclined to the Lord. In fact, because of sin, our hearts are naturally inclined away from him. We are more ready to receive the wisdom that we find out in the world than we find in his word. It's not natural to do that, and yet the word says, but listen, and hear, and pursue. And we feel like, why are you telling me something that I don't even think I can follow? Why are you, you drawing me in this way? But we find that it's the Lord who is active in pursuing His people. Even if that pursuit is out of our reach. The, the key for understanding this comes in verse 8. It says, the Lord watches over the way of His saints. Now, if you're opening the New Testament and you see that word, saints, almost to a fault, that is translating a word that has its root in the idea of holiness, uprightness, set-apartness, God's distinct people, set apart by the Holy Spirit in them. And so when you read saints in the New Testament, it could also be translated God's holy ones. But here, actually, the word is different in the Old Testament. The root isn't in holiness, the the root is in love. God's beloved ones. The the word here uh, for saints is hasadim. It's taken from that great Old Testament word, chesed, God's mercy, his, his initiating love, his condescending covenant love, the love that he bestows upon his people when they don't even deserve his love. That's who they are. He says he watches over those whom he has chosen to love, his covenant partners that he has called, just like he called Abraham, wandering around in idolatry, and the Lord shows up and says, walk with me, go with me. Abraham says, I didn't even know I was, I was looking for anything, actually. And he became his hasadim, his his saint, his beloved. You know, in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Greeks and the Jews who scoff at the cross. And they think it foolishness. They think it a stumbling block. But he tells us this is actually God's design. The Lord chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world. He chose Christ and him crucified. Something that no man, would really be attracted to in order to be uh, the mechanism, to make him the mechanism by which he would draw people to himself. To show his wisdom and not man's wisdom. The Lord chose Jesus to shame what the world counts as wise. And because God has been pursuing us, he tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God has made Christ to be our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Brothers and sisters, who are God's upright ones? Who are the ones that walk with him in paths of integrity? Who are the ones that receive his wisdom? Who is upright? The ones who are beloved in the Son. They're the ones who are chosen from before the foundations of the world. They are God's covenant partners, set apart 
through faith and growing in holiness by the Spirit. And this is the wisdom of the Lord. To provide what they could never provide for themselves. When they need to walk with Him in wisdom, the Lord is the one who draws them, who stores up for them, who guards them, who keeps them, who chooses them and brings them. And so we find God's wisdom even here. That as He calls us to pursue Him, we find that He's been providing all along. If he gives us any faithfulness to put one foot in front of the other, to walk the paths of righteousness, we find that he's the one who's drawing us along with cords of love the whole time because he is the provider of wisdom. And so we've seen the pursuit of wisdom. We found the provider of wisdom. And now Solomon turns to consider the protection of wisdom. You know, an interesting thing happens when you find the wisdom of God. Take a look at verse 10. Verse 9, then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path, for, for wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Verse 10 tells us that when you open your ear, when you incline your heart to what the Lord has to say, wisdom sinks into your bones. It gets inside of you, and it becomes a protection for you from the inside out. We had we had a little black, uh, what was it? It was a cockapoo named Bear, this little curly-haired dog when I was a kid. And Bear was a great dog for a kid. He was an outside dog, like all of our pets were outside pets, and so he didn't sleep inside. He slept out in a doghouse, and he would run through the woods with us, and he would go to the barn with us, and he went anywhere that a dog would love to be and get messy and muddy, and that meant that Bear always wore one of those little plastic flea collars. I think they worked most of the time when I was pretty young, but I think sometimes we would forget to change that flea color. And then he certainly wasn't allowed in the house until we scrubbed him, until we cleaned him, until we dealt with, with whatever he had gotten into. But now you hardly ever see dogs wearing those little plastic collars because we have heart guard and neck guard and, and front line and all these little beef-flavored chews that you give to your dog. And what does it do? It gets inside of them and it begins to kill the fleas and the ticks from the inside out. And I think, in, in a sort of way, this is the picture that we have. When you, when you come to wisdom, there's a protection that happens because it gets inside of you. It's not just something that you tie around your wrist or around your neck. It's something that comes into your bones. It, it comes into your heart and into your, whole, into your soul. Verse 10, wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to you. You see that change in taste. It's like the picky eater who grows up to love his vegetables. Knowledge will be pleasant. And all the things of the world that seem so alluring begin to lose their sparkle when, when the Lord draws us behind him in wisdom. Instead, the way of the Lord is good and pleasant. And then verse 10, the protection. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. Now that should sound familiar because those are the same words that were just applied to the Lord. In verse 8, he's the one who guards, he's the one who watches over. But now it says in verse 11 that discretion will watch and understanding will guard. And that's the way the Lord works. How does he keep his people? How does he protect his people? Well, he does it by his Holy Spirit. He does it immediately, without mediation. He puts his Holy Spirit into his people's hearts, into their lives, to give them strength to resist temptation that they never had on their own. He makes their hearts 
new. But one of the ways that he does that is not just by putting his spirit into his people, but by putting his word into his people. And calling to mind the paths of righteousness that he's called us to walk with him at just the right moment. Don't you find that happening? That same sin that you've been dealing with is pawing around your door like a stray cat. And you are seeking to put to death a spirit of gossip and backbiting. And your coworker comes to you and says, you won't believe what so-and-so did. Wait until you hear this. And you want to hear You want to hear a story that's so juicy that it's practically dripping with drama. You want to be the first person to hear so you can tell somebody else and they can say, oh, I heard it from them. You want to hear something embarrassing about somebody else because it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself and your flesh actually wants very much to hear what so-and-so did. How does the Lord keep you in that moment? Well, he gives you his spirit, certainly, to give you the the will to resist, but he also gives you his word that he's hiding inside of your heart, hidden inside of your heart that you might not sin against him. And perhaps in that moment he reminds you of the call in his word to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And you find that discretion is a protection for you and wisdom keeps you. And you find that the Lord who provides wisdom also protects his people. I've mentioned that we're going to skip over much of the rest of this passage, and we're going to come back to it. Uh, We see in verse 12 that that this idea of protection is expanded, and we get two categories of of kinds of people. That's really what's in mind here, kinds of people that we are protected from, influences from the outside uh, that wisdom, when it gets into our heart, will protect us against. It protects us uh, from the wicked man and the forbidden woman. Now, we're going to come back to those, but what you need to see now before uh, we go any further is that in each of these temptations, whether in, uh, in the wicked uh, company that we are tempted to keep or, or in those that come and entice us into sexual perversity and, and into fornication or adultery and all of these other sexual sins, what you need to see is the war of words that's going on. How did the passage begin? Well, if you receive my words, if you treasure up my commandments because it's from the Lord's Mouth And why do you need his words? Well, because people are going to come to you, it says in verse 12, with perverted speech. These are the men who walk in evil. Their words are upside down from what the Lord says is good. Their mouths are full of blasphemy and innuendo and angry words. They're the ones whose tongues are sharp as swords, and they don't mind telling a lie or six if they can get ahead in the world. All right, but who is the forbidden woman in verse 16? Well, she's the woman with smooth words. Maybe your translation says flattering words, enticing words. She'll come and tell you what she thinks you want to hear so that she can get what she wants, but actually words don't mean anything to her. Because one day she'll mouth the vows of a marriage covenant, and the next day she'll go out gathering her illicit lovers. It would be very easy also to switch the genders on these. We could also say, women, you need to be aware of your violent female companions, and, and those that would take you in all sorts of wicked ways. Women, you need to be aware of that guy that you just met that comes to you with smooth words and making all of your, uh, your dreams come true, he says, and yet he's dragging this whole wake of broken promises behind him. You need to watch out for the kinds of words that people will say. And how can you be protected? Well, when discretion gets into your heart, it will watch over you. 
and understanding will guard you, and the Lord himself will protect you by his wisdom that he provides. Now, I need to press your patience with one final point. We need to see in verses 20 to 22 the permanence of wisdom. In these verses, Solomon is speaking in the way that wisdom leads the believer in paths of lasting life. Take a look. Read them with me. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Now you know that for the Old Testament believer, the grand hope, the best thing they could hope for, at least in this Life was to remain in the land that God had promised to his people. We read it today in Deuteronomy chapter 1 at the end. What did they want? They wanted this promise and they had sinned and the Lord says, no, I'll give it to others who are walking in the upright way. And you see that played out. The greatest thing they could think of was what the Lord had himself promised. Life and and liberty and a kingdom that couldn't be shaken with the Lord. A place where their children could grow up free from the oppression of foreign influence. And likewise, the greatest curse in the Old Testament, the most fearful thing for a wayward Israelite was to be cast out of the land, to be taken away from God's people. And so the closing verses of this chapter here as well set up a dichotomy. There are two ways. There's the way of wisdom and there is the way of folly. There's the way of uprightness and there is the way of wickedness. There are those who remain in the land and there's who are rooted out. Solomon's telling us that it's wisdom, real, real biblical wisdom, that makes the difference between those two. Now, if you just read that at face value, just first blush reading, it might seem kind of harsh. In fact, it might even seem like life in God's kingdom could just be reduced to a value exchange. No better, no better than Islam. If, if, you, if you obey at least this much, God your God will love you. And if you don't obey that much, he will be done with you and be rid of you. But you need to know that this promise, this idea that the upright will remain and the wicked will be rooted out, it is one of the most pervasive refrains in the Old Testament. It's practically everywhere. The Lord repeats this over and over and over again, and he repeats it for a very good reason. That's because the entire Old Testament and all of its wisdom, all of its promises, all of its warnings were actually meant to prepare the people to expect a Savior who would exceed their expectations something they couldn't even begin to imagine, someone who would come to bring about unimagined treasures that the Lord had laid up for those who love him, for those who are his called, his Hasidim, according to his purposes. And even here in the heart of of God's instruction for wisdom, the Lord is repeating this promise, same as he does everywhere else in the Old Testament, and he's doing it in order to lay low the wisdom of man, to show what justice looks like, to show them what it is, and so that everyone will see, actually, this this would be the right way for the Lord to work. If you walk with him, he will keep you. If you refuse to walk with him, he will cast you out. If you are righteous enough, he will keep you. If you are unrighteous enough, he will be rid of you. And he does this to silence the vanity of man, to lay low the prideful, who think that they are wise and yet are fools, to rebuke the one who has no use for instruction of the Lord and for his word, and yet he did it also to prepare the way for the servant that he was sending into the world. 
one who would amaze God's people, not only with justice, but with mercy. The one who would come to be the embodiment of God's wisdom. Where do we find God's wisdom embodied? Is it in casting out those who have not attained to some position? Or is it in the mercy of Jesus Christ? Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. How shall he act wisely? Well, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. That's the wisdom of God on display. That Christ should be lifted up. What does Jesus speak of in the Gospel of John when he's preparing? And all throughout the Gospel of John, he's been saying, No, my time hasn't come. My time hasn't come. The hour isn't yet. Now the hour has come when I will be exalted. And he said this to tell you by, which, uh, by what way he would die. Where is the wisdom of God displayed? In sending one who is upright to die for those who are wicked, to call them to himself, to be the sacrifice for sinners, to those who, whose hearts are inclined in the evil way, to draw them back and to say, no, while you were yet my enemy, I loved you and I sent my son for you. My servant shall act wisely. He will be high and he will be lifted up. He will be exalted. And then it concludes, out of the anguish of his soul, my, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the Lord is the one who provides wisdom. Not just wisdom of the written word, but wisdom of the word incarnate. Wisdom of Christ who came and walked the paths of uprightness with the Lord in every jot and tittle, the Lord who came and kept the law abundantly and perfectly and righteously in every small and minute way and every detail. And he sent him to be the embodiment of wisdom and to give his life as a ransom for many who haven't pursued nearly as strenuously as they ought to. And yet we'll come to this table in just a moment and find the promise that the Lord continues to provide. What is it that allows you and I, you and me, whose, whose, our hearts are, are turned in the direction of our own interest, our hearts are turned away from the wisdom of the Lord? What is it that allows us to walk with the Lord in righteousness and in uprightness? It's the merits of Christ given for us. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling us. It's the Lord who pursues us so that we will continue to pursue Him and to walk with Him. This is where we're beginning this summer. Finding the Lord who pursues us. Finding the Lord who provides wisdom for us and calling us to walk with Him. I hope that you're walking with Him today. But if you're not, hear and know that the Lord calls and He says, incline your ear and listen. Hear the word of the one who came to be wise in your stead. The one who gives His Holy Spirit to make you wise with Him. The one who calls you to walk with Him in wisdom and in uprightness. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the wisdom of Christ given for your people. We thank you that he is the one who was raised up in our stead, who took the punishment of being cast out of the people and turned out of the city and out of Jerusalem and crucified beside the road like a common criminal, though he had done nothing wrong and no deceit was found in his mouth, though his words were perfect and pure. We thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. We pray that as you walk us through your word this summer, 
that we would receive your wisdom with meekness, that you would implant your word, that would come into our bones and our heart and our soul, and so that you would keep us until the day of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.